Welcome back to Senior Living Arizona, devoted to educating and enlightening the senior community and their families within our beautiful state and beyond regarding retirement housing and getting the most out of aging. On behalf of Senior Living Services in Arizona, I'd like to introduce today's host, Linda Demita. Thank you for tuning in with us today on Senior Living Arizona. Today's guest is Executive Director Donna Long with Aviant Hospice. Aviant is a regional hospice agency with five branches. They have three in Arizona, one in Nevada, and one in Colorado. Today, we'll be learning about what hospice is, how hospice works, and what you can expect from a reliable hospice agency and what the process entails to sign on for hospice. We'll cover some important information, including what directives are and how the five wishes can come into play for you or a loved one in the future. Plus, we'll learn what it's like to be in the position of caregiving to those who are transitioning from this world to the next and what effect it's had for this special lady working in the field of hospice care. Donna, thank you so much for your time today to share with us your knowledge and expertise so we can all learn about what you do in service to our senior population and anyone who's facing a terminal illness or the end of their life. This is such a valuable service that you're a part of, one that has made a huge difference in so many lives, including my own, as I cared for both of my parents until they passed away. And the hospice agencies that I hired took such good care of my parents, but also what they did for me personally and for my family changed my perspective completely on dying, you know, to where I am now actually comfortable with the dying process. But to get to this place, though, you know, I've learned that knowledge empowered me to move through the levels of transitioning while my parents were going through it. So with our interview today, we hope to offer some of that empowerment to our listeners as well. So first of all, would you please just share a little bit about your background? You know, what inspired you to become a nurse and how did you end up in the field of hospice care? Yeah, sure. So I have always loved caring for people and actually grew up in a family with a lot of medical professionals. So I always knew I wanted to go into medicine in some way, shape or form. And um, I started out as a caregiver. I actually graduated high school with my CNA license. And um, so I've been in healthcare for about 15 years now. Um, and I just, I love caring for people. Being a nurse has just brought so much joy and passion to be able to educate and advocate for my patients and educate them on what they can choose for their um, their health and their care. I think that's so important. Wow. And out of high school, that's unusual. I mean, not a lot of us come out of high school knowing what we want to do, what we want to be with that kind of drive. So I'm so glad you're a guest today because you really do have a lifelong experience and it's a, a purpose, it sounds like, and a passion for you. Absolutely. So how did you end up in the field of hospice care? So hospice was never really something on my radar when I was going through nursing school. You know, I was going to save the world and be an ICU nurse. And um, I going through my nursing career, you know, I worked in an oncology department and I worked in a long term acute care where we had a lot of really ill patients who their outcomes typically weren't great because they were so ill and there wasn't much we could do for them at that point. And it really was a struggle for me to 
try to continue to give these patients care. And I, I remember I would have patients in my oncology unit who would say, please, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do the chemo anymore. They would beg me to stop. And then their families would come in and like pressure them and push them towards doing something they didn't want to do. And it was so heartbreaking to see these patients suffer, really suffer sometimes because of the treatments we were trying to give them when the ultimate outcome was death, unfortunately, for some of them. So for me, it was just such a passion to be able to give these patients an opportunity to choose what they wanted to actually do for their health and educate them on what their options could be. That's cool. So have you worked with other agencies in the past? And if you did, what was your experience with them? Actually, Avian's been the only hospice company I've worked for, and um, they're just such a great company. They Truly, I mean, from the very top, our CEO down, our entire board members, everyone is really about what's best for the patient, no matter what. That's great. So how long have you been with Aviant Hospice? I've been with Aviant for about five years now. Wow. Have you always been uh, in the role of executive director? Did you move up to that? I actually started out as a PRN nurse. Um, I was working in the hospital and I just was really unhappy in the hospital because, again, we weren't. I wasn't able to give the patients what they wanted most of the time. We're so driven to cure people. Save lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and some people don't want that. You know, we would see the same patients come in and come out and they would just go home and continue to be non-compliant because that was their lifestyle choice. And hospice allows us to give them the opportunity to continue their lifestyle while keeping them comfortable. So um, I started out as a PRN nurse and kind of worked my way up through the ranks. I was a case manager for a while. And, What's a PRN nurse? Um, as, for our listeners that don't know. Yeah. So an as-needed nurse, I would just kind of pick up shifts and go see patients um, when I was able to um, and also do some call shifts as well um, to be on call for our patients. Okay, that helps because people are like, what's that? What kind, you know, <laughs> not everybody knows what those symbols are. So, yeah. so what is your official title outside of an executive director as a nurse? What are all of your, um, all those letters that come after your name? What are they and what do they mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I just graduated with um, my MSN and my MBA. So that's a master degree in science of nursing, as well as, of course, as a master in business associates. Um, and then I have my CHPN certification, which is a certified hospice and palliative care nurse. Wow. Wow. When do you have time to do all of that and do what you do? My goodness. I just, you know, I'm very dedicated to my, it's my passion. It's, you know, it's what I do in my free time because I love what I do. Oh, that's fantastic. That's the, that's what people need in this world. I believe if they do go um, to, to get to the point in their lives where they need hospice, they need people like you because you're the kind of people that make a difference in, in the lives of others, especially during such an important time. So, um, so what led you to this role as executive director? How'd you get there? Yeah, my, um, 
my boss at the time, my executive director, when I was, you know, the as needed nurse and a case manager, really kind of helped shape and, and groom me to be an executive director. And that was always my passion. I'm, I've always been a leader at heart because I want to make a difference and I want to make sure we do things the right way. So it was just one of those things that I, I kind of always had my eye on and the opportunity presented itself and I jumped at it. Good girl. Good for you. That's, 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 it was all the stars were aligned as they <laughs> say. And I mean, I think a lot of it's you because of the energy that you put out there, you know, to be seen that way and your, your art um, definitely shows. It's impressive. So, would you be kind enough because a lot of people might say they've heard of what, you know, about hospice, but they really don't know what hospice is. So um, would you be kind enough to explain that to our audience and then tell us how it works? Absolutely. You know, there is a lot of negative stigma out there about hospice when it was originally started. You know, people didn't really know what it was and felt like, we would institutionalize our patients and give them medication to euthanize them, basically, which is so far from what we do. Um, really, we're about comfort care. So patients that are eligible for hospice are patients who have a terminal illness. Um, and so we're, we're going to bring them on our services to care for them while keeping them comfortable, knowing that there's no more aggressive treatment that they could do to be curative for their disease process at that time. So we're about making people comfortable. Um, we care for them wherever they call home. Um, in our company, there are other companies that do have inpatient hospice units. Um, so we would bring them to that, that unit and care for them there. Um, but we go to where the patient calls home um, and we, we just care for them and love on them there. We teach their families how to care for them. Um, we help provide resources for them as well to keep them comfortable through the end stages of their life. Gotcha. So, so how, so you explained it, but in terms of like what it is, but how does it actually work? Like how do people know when hospice is really necessary and if it's necessary at all? Right. So, Ideally, that starts with your primary care physicians seeing those things, um, seeing the decline. You know, a lot of patients with heart failure or respiratory failures start to have this decline where we get to a point where we try medication after medication that doesn't help. Um, so, so those are the things that we would look for. Um, there, there are definitely um, regulations from Medicare. Medicare really pushes and regulates what patients are eligible for hospice. So that's that's kind of our guiding spot where we start looking for what patients might be eligible. So really starting with decline is our big indicator that um, or, or the medication just isn't helping anymore um, would be the indicator that hospice would be necessary. So when um, how does how does hospice then translate financially for people because you mentioned medicare you know does do do the individuals pay for hospice uh, hospice or is does insurance cover it like how does it work financially 100 percent, our services are covered by insurance or medicare ah so can anyone get hospice services as long as they're eligible yes. what does that mean to be eligible like children or young people are they eligible for hospice yes if you have a terminal diagnosis 
um, that meets the requirements set forth by Medicare, then yes, um, there are companies out there that do have uh, pediatric or children hospices as well. Um, so yeah, anyone, anyone that is eligible and meets the criteria set forth by Medicare. Wow. So, so it doesn't matter if you're super, super rich or super, super poor. If you're dying, hospice is there for you. I've taken care of people in multi-million dollar houses and I've taken care of people that are homeless. Oh, I didn't know that. Everything in between. We find a way to take care of our patients no matter where they are. Oh my gosh, that makes me want to cry. I'm so grateful to hear that because I, I lived in New York City for my 20s mm-hmm. and a lot, of, it was, I'm going to date myself right now, but it was uh, 1988 mm-hmm. to 1997. I lived in New York City and I saw a lot of homeless people. And I mean, desperate, destitute, insane homeless people. And I had seen some that were dying and one that I used to feed regularly. And one day he wasn't there anymore. And they told me that he was found in the gutter and he had died overnight alone. And I just, I, I just felt so distraught for that population that there was nobody there to care for them. So that feels really good to hear. Um, very reassuring. So, um, so you mentioned earlier, but just to clarify, so hospice is, is it just for people? It's not just for people at home. It can also be, it can happen in a hospital. Yes. Yeah. There are different levels of care also with hospice. So um, typically we take care of people in routine home care, which means we're going to go to wherever they call home, whether that's a skilled nursing facility, an assisted living facility, um, an independent living facility in their home, wherever they call home, um, we'll go to them and care for them. Um, but there are different levels of care based off of the patient's needs. Um, so there's continuous home care where we will stay in the home with the patient. Um, if they're having a crisis or some sort of symptom management needs um, that we're just not able to care for remotely, basically. So we would stay with them to care for them, get them comfortable again. Um, And then there's times where we need to actually place them in a facility um, to help care for them where there's 24 hour nurses um, and higher levels of care to be able to care for them and get them comfortable. Would that be a skilled nursing or a nursing home? That would be a hospital or a nursing home. A yes, hospital they or a nursing home. Because skilled nursing, because I did a podcast on this about mm-hmm. what the difference is. Because skilled nursing is for somebody, it's a temporary stay, correct? Yes. Okay. So nursing home is, or a hospital or whatever home that they live in. Correct. That's fantastic. So can, can people or a family, an individual, can they choose the hospice agency that they want or... Is it assigned to them? Nope. Every patient has a right to choose which hospice they're with. Um, absolutely. That's great. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the area then that they live in. Correct. Right. But mm-hmm. but a buy-in, since our podcast is for uh, senior living in Arizona, they mm-hmm. are not just here in northern Arizona, but they're throughout? Correct. So we have a branch down in um, the Mesa, Phoenix area, and then one further down in the Gila Globe area. Cool. I'm glad to know that. Um, So should people have their affairs in order to enlist hospice? 
if they offend or when they need it, or is it something that um, just is offered and kind of they go along, uh, lean into it as they need it? So we always suggest that somebody has their affairs in order and has an advanced directive or a living will or the five wishes filled out because it just makes it so much easier for the families to help make those decisions if and when the patient gets to a point where they're not able to make those decisions. But a lot of times people are kind of blindsided and I didn't realize I was as sick and need all this extra care or maybe a stroke happened and there was an acute incident that created a situation where they needed hospice care and they don't have anything in order. Um, we have our social workers available as well as our nurses who are trained to help kind of guide our patients through and, and help them figure out what their options are and what would be best for them. So for somebody like, let's say... Um they suddenly have a cough, they've never been a smoker, they've never, you know, been sick, they go to the doctor, they find out they've got stage four cancer, that they don't have long to live, that they could get treatment, but they decide not to get treatment to just let life take its course. Mm -hmm. For somebody like that, who could be a young person, mm -hmm. even if they don't have their directives, hospice is still available and will help them through the process. Absolutely. That's good to know because, I mean, some people might think, well, I'm only 30 or 40 or 50 years old and I don't want to think that way about what I might need if I should, if I might get sick or, but it's a reality all of us are going to face one day. Absolutely. Some of us get taken out really quick and it's painless or, you know, mm -hmm. um, easy and then some of us it just sort of shows up and then we got to deal with it. So. Right. Good to know. Good to know. This is the kind of information we want people to have so that they can really understand yeah. if and or when the time comes what they can do. Absolutely. So what are directives? What is an advanced directive and and like the five wishes? How do those things work? Yeah. So each state does them, of course, a little differently. Um, in Arizona, um, we have advanced directives and living wills, as well as power of attorneys. So these forms all kind of discuss and outline what your wishes are personally for you if and when something were to happen. So would you want to have CPR done? And if so, do you want to be intubated? Do you want to have medication given? Do you want to have a feeding tube? Um, would you just want to be made comfortable and and kept, you know, comfortable through the end of life if there's no um, curative measures that can be done? How aggressive do you want your treatment at the end of life and and it, that might change throughout your life you know if you're in your 30s and writing out an advanced directive you probably want to try and have everything done and be intubated and put in the ICU and have aggressive treatment whereas if you're in your 70s that might not be the options that you want so you want to make sure that they're updated and change them as needed as well this just kind of helps your family make those decisions for you because they're already outlined for you. Um, a power of attorney is something that you would appoint someone in your life. Um, it can be anyone that you want. It does not have to be a family member. It can be a friend. Um, there are elder advocates out there that you could appoint to be your power of attorney as well. Um, it can be literally anyone you want um, as long as they're willing and able um, to make those decisions if you're unable to. Good to know. So, so, What's the difference between like 
uh, an advanced directive, a POA, and the five wishes. And how, which ones are, which is more powerful or um, negates another, etc. None of them will negate each other. They just, you know, if you fill one out and you fill another one out five years later, that new one will negate the old one. Okay. So the old one would no longer be in practice anymore. Um, all of them kind of outline the same things in a different way. So none of them are really better than another. The five wishes I love because it's kind of a little page, a little pamphlet, about five pages that really talks through and walks through everything. It's a very simple form to fill out. Whereas the advanced directives and the living wills and the power of attorney paperwork typically have a lot more legal language in it and are a lot more difficult for people to understand what they're actually signing and saying. So if somebody has, like, let's say they have their five wishes, they've got it filled out and um, they're separated from their spouse. And let's say they have a whole nother life and they're maybe in the process of a divorce, um, but the divorce isn't final and something happens and they end up with a terminal illness or they're in a place where they're, they're going to pass away. And they have their five wishes, which is their, their most recent dated documentation. Does that override if they had something with their spouse? Unfortunately, no. If something is legally written out, then the power of attorney, then that is who they would have to, the medical professional would have to go to to get decisions made for them. So if you are separated or something happens in your life and something changes, you would want to fill that out as soon as possible and have that put in place as soon as possible to negate the old form if that's the person you no longer want making decisions for you. And if you don't have anything in place with your estranged spouse, for example, mm -hmm. um, you've never had, maybe it's a younger, younger couple or something. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you're faced with this. If you have the five wishes and that's your only documentation, then does that take precedence or does your surviving spouse, even if you're not living together, etc., does the surviving spouse still have the right to step in and make decisions for you? Or would your five wishes, um, be the directive that, legally would be followed if your five wishes is notarized then that is a legal document and that's who would be followed um, if that person says nope we're estranged and i don't want to make those decisions anymore then in the state of arizona there's the healthcare surrogate law um, which outlines um you know the next of kin um who is able and willing so they kind of go down the list they would start with you know parents if they're there a spouse then children so on and so forth and they would just kind of go down the list and find who would be willing and able to make those decisions okay so why is hospice important overall in your opinion um, as a hospice, we take care of the entire family unit when we take care of a patient. And that is so necessary because not only is that patient struggling with the end of life and they're not going to be here anymore, they want to make sure everyone is taken care of, everything is in place so that their family doesn't have to do it without them. But the family is going through that grieving process as well and needs that extra love and support. Um, so we, we really take care of the whole family and we follow up with that family for at least 13 months after the patient passes away to continue to give them that support. 
that happened for me with my when my dad died. He died in, in right during the beginning of the pandemic, and it was a wonderful hospice agency. And they called me three months after he died, six months after he died, nine months after he died, a year after he died. And every time I talked with somebody, they were so good to me. And 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 depending on where I was at, I mean, they would spend an hour on the phone with me while I just cried and cried about what I was dealing with. Absolutely. It makes me want to cry now. It yeah. was so special. And it really did help me with the grieving process and dealing with it, even though I'd been through it before. You know, when it's a family member, it doesn't matter how many family members you may have lost or even how many animals you've lost. How many dogs have I lost in my lifetime? Every time I get a new dog and I have a life with them, it's just as painful. Absolutely. So it's a beautiful um, thing. What if what if you're talking to somebody or helping somebody who doesn't have any family? Like, what if you're helping a homeless person? For How helping, does that work if they don't have any family? Yeah, if we're helping a homeless person, then um, we would just continue to support them. They might have friends around that we would support as well. Really, anyone who that patient calls their family is who's going to get that support and love from us after. Because like you said, every family member is different. It doesn't matter. You could have lost your entire family and, you know, your best friend dies and that could be really traumatic for you. And grieving is a really roller coaster of emotions and it doesn't follow the path. And and I think it's really important to make sure we follow up with those people and know that the way that they're grieving is the right way to grieve because that's how they need to grieve. I think it's, I, I was going to say, it's definitely a very personal um, individual process. Absolutely. It's like, wait, well, that's why when somebody says, Oh, come on, you know, get over it. It's been this long. You can't say that to somebody. Mm-hmm. You can't even expect, I mean, you could say that, but it doesn't mean that that's the right thing right? or, or um, the kind or compassionate way. Everybody's grieving process is so different. And Absolutely. it's nice to know that hospice does that. And even for somebody who doesn't have family. Absolutely. So um, what, is has dying been like i mean is there a general thing that you've experienced in terms of you know what is dying like for most people dying is different for everyone so it's a very difficult question to answer um you know there's a lot of things that go into it we look at the disease processes sometimes those those patients with similar disease processes or terminal diagnosis or illnesses Um, sometimes their end of life looks similar. Um, but of course it's always different. We, we have a lot of things to look at their disease process and what their wishes are, how aggressive they want to be with their comfort care versus, you know, some people still want to try and take their medications to treat their, their illness, which is absolutely something we allow. Um, so their, their end of life is going to look a lot different than someone who says, I don't want to take any more medication. I just want to be on comfort medication. you know, a lot of things go into that. Their their emotional and spiritual well-being plays a role into it. Their family units play a role into it. So end of life looks different for everyone. Um, yeah. Good answer. So how does hospice assist people who have a fear of dying? That's where our um, amazing social workers and chaplains come into role. So our chaplains are, um, we, we 
lean more towards the term spiritual advisor because that's really what they're there for. They're, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want the chaplain. They're going to come in and they're going to thump their Bible down my throat. And that's absolutely not what our chaplains do. They come in and they meet you where you're at to try and help you through that journey. And our social workers are the same way. We really just want the best for our patients and our families and to help guide them through this process and whatever that looks like for them. And, and um, how do you suggest if somebody is taking authority over their dying process they know what they're facing and they're they're going to go out there and look for a hospice agency um how do you suggest somebody find the right the right one for their needs you know i i have had so many patients call and interview us or have us come out to the house and meet with them we're coming into your home and a very, very sensitive time in your life. And it has to be the right agency for you. And that's the beauty of why there's so many of us, because you can really find the right hospice agency for you. How do you know if it's the right hospice agency? What would you, what would you say to somebody like, not even as in your role, but like, what would your advice be? I think really figuring out what you need um, versus what the hospice can provide. So some some hospices are really um, rigorous and regimented in their end of life care and medications and services that they offer, and others are a little more lenient and open. And you know, our hospice agency is really all about what the patient needs. If you need our CNAs to come out every day, then that's something we can help provide. So, so what kind of questions should they ask? I think asking, you know, what, what that hospice provides and really seeing what that company is going to be able to provide you okay. is really the best way to go about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, so how, how are you able to help the family members, you know, while they're dealing with the loved one who's dying? I mean, do you ever have people who are like, freaking out or um, breaking down? or in denial of the process like how do you help them absolutely like i said every grieving process is different and every family member's grieving process is different so again that's a lot where our social worker and our chaplain come in and help you know one one-on-one -on -one with those family members and spend time with them go grab a cup of coffee if that's something that they need and just talk with them and help help them explore those feelings and emotions that they're having um, and a lot of education from our nurses. Our nurses are so fantastic about talking through the end of life process and what they're seeing in that patient and what might come next. Um, we have a really great book as well called um, When the End is Near. Um, and it talks about the end of life process, things that we start to see physically with the patient um, as they're going through the end of life process. And I, I find a lot of times the family just needs a job. They need to do something to help. And sometimes that's just being there. And, and so that's, that's all outlined in that book as well. And kind of talks about some of the things that you can do as a family member, or a loved one to help care for that patient in the end of life. That's the little blue book, right? It's real. There's it's real so many different oh, ones, okay. but yes. <laughs> okay. Cause I know yeah. that, um, I had the one I had saved it from when my mother died mm -hmm. 15 years prior to my dad dying, yeah. and, or 14 years. And um, luckily, though, the hospice agency 
I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they got, gave me another one. And I, when I reread it, I was like, oh yeah. Then, mm-hmm. then when this happens, I don't need to freak out. This is what, this is what happens to the normal, body. This right. is what the person, this is how they breathe. And this mm-hmm. is how they look. And these are the things that happen. Because if you don't know what to expect, it can be really shocking and frightening for people. Absolutely. Um, and I know that, that there's that time when um, you'll have to tell me what it is. I think there's a name for it. When a person suddenly perks up and they're eating and they're talking and they're engaging. And it's, a, it's actually, you think, oh my God, maybe they're not going to die. Right. And then it shifts. Yeah. Yeah. That's the surge of energy that we see usually somewhere in that last week of life. Um, they, they do, they perk up and they might get out of bed and eat when they haven't been out of bed for two weeks. They haven't really eaten anything. And, and then the next day, usually, or the day after they, they go into almost an end of life coma and, and are kind of unresponsive and pass usually several days after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I knew to expect that with my dad and he had a big breakfast. Yep. He had eggs and chorizo and beans. Cause he loved that with the uh, toast and he had juice and then he had watermelon. And I thought, Oh my God, maybe my dad's not going to die. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, I realized, Oh, this is that surge yeah. perhaps. And it was exactly that the next day he yeah. was quiet. Very quiet. Yeah. Was, was, uh, you could, you, I could stir him. I could wake him and he could engage, but it was like, almost like he was, um, distant, very distant. Mm -hmm. Like he was starting to leave. Yeah. Yeah. That's something our nurses are really good about educating families about too. When we're starting to see some of those things and, you know, I, especially when our patients are what we call imminent in their last week of life, our nurses and our social workers go daily um, to see the patients, to make sure they're comfortable, educate the families. And I really make sure that, okay, this is what we're seeing today. These are the things that are going to come next um, in the end of life process. And these are things to expect and they're normal. I think some people really get scared because they think that these things are not normal and it's the normal part of the dying process. It is. Mm-hmm. Except for when somebody like my, my father-in-law who just goes in their sleep, mm-hmm. like that's the ultimate way. Absolutely. It can be shocking for the family right. because that one, you know, well, grandpa was awake. Your, you know, grandpa was fine last night. And then this morning you just didn't wake up. Sometimes that's a lot easier though, because the dying process can be, um, feel long and drawn out to some people. Yeah. Some yeah. people almost feel guilty because they're just like, we're just ready for them to go and they're lingering and holding on. And sometimes it's because they're waiting for something. They're waiting for someone to come say goodbye or they're waiting for a certain date. Um, it can be, it can be really hard. Would you say, I mean, this, I don't know if you can answer this or not, mm-hmm. um, being a professional, um, but uh, I guess it would also kind of be a personal answer or a personal opinion, but would you say that people choose their time? I do. Absolutely. I think a lot of people really do choose. I've seen people hang on for weeks in that end of life coma where they're unresponsive and they're not eating and they're not drinking. Um, and, and then their sister comes in from out of town cause they couldn't get there any sooner. And then they go the next day. 
Like they were waiting for her to come or they're waiting for a certain date. Or I recently had um, a patient who waited until the next day because it was the family member's birthday and they just were begging and pleading with their loved one to not go on their birthday. And so they did, they waited. That's incredible, isn't it? It is is insane to me sometimes how our psyche is so powerful. It really is. I mean, if if you're killed in a car accident or you know, something like that, that's really out of your control mm-hmm. because the damage can be so bad or devastating right. on your body that your, your body, body just fails. can't, yeah, the body mm-hmm. fails. It just can't support you anymore. But when you are in that place, I mean, I, I was hoping you would say that mm-hmm. because that's been my experience Yeah, with, um, with, uh, I've, I've been with my, well, my father-in-law passing to sleep. Um, my mother-in-law had an episode was on life support and we were all there mm-hmm. when, and my, my mother-in-law was super popular and she always loved having people around her. She was Italian and she always, you know, fed everybody and the most important people, all her best friends and her kids, we were all able to be there. Mm-hmm. And, and with my mom. She actually waited until my dad and everybody left the room. Yeah. And I was the only one there. I was I was just going to say that, you know, I've seen people wait until everyone's in the room and they take their last breath or one specific person. Or I recently read a story that um, a husband was caring for his wife and she was adamant and told the hospice nurse multiple times that she didn't want him there to watch her take his last her last breath. And she, he was gone for 30 seconds to use the restroom and came back. And that's when she chose to pass. Yeah, my my dad, you know, we were in the middle of Mm-hmm. So my family could not be there because it was early in the pandemic right. where there was a lot of fear and we couldn't visit and you know nobody nobody was leaving their house you right. know and um and my my boyfriend was there and my daughter was there but her boyfriend had stepped out to go get coffee for them mm-hmm. and um and my dad it was like. Actually, I think my mom came for him. I'm going to tell a little story because I was dealing with my father's finances and there was something that was lingering and I had to go to the bank and I was so upset because you had to stand outside the bank and you had to wear a mask and you couldn't go in without an appointment. I called the bank to get an appointment and all this stuff was going on. And I told my mom, like, mom, please don't because, you know, in the ethers, mom, please don't take daddy yet. Please don't take daddy because I have to I have to figure this out. I don't know what to do. And, and my cousin who was handling my dad's affairs called me and he said, it's okay. Everything's taken care of. You know, everything's clear. We know where, where money's going, etc." And I hung up the phone with my cousin and my daughter said, mom, get in here. And it, my dad was in the, it was like taking his last breaths and we were there with him. And it was like instantaneous. As soon as the answer came, okay, daddy's going. And it was extraordinarily profound yes. because I could, I could be with him. And I was so scared when I left the house. Right. I was like, please don't leave without me. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that he didn't. Right. Because it was his choice and right. he could have. Yeah. And I think people, when that happens for them, they, they go through this guilt process. Mm-hmm. They beat themselves up. Oh, I shouldn't have gone to the bathroom. I shouldn't have taken a shower. 
I shouldn't have left my mother because she she died without me there. But I, it, it, would you say or would you agree that it's important for people to understand that it's all right? Absolutely. I think, you know, you have to take care of yourself to take care of them. I tell that to my family members all the time because you just run yourself ragged because you don't want to leave their side. You want them to have someone there with them. And I think sometimes people just want someone in their presence and not necessarily with them. And that's okay too. They, you know, that, that person has to choose when they're going to go. And, and sometimes that, that means not having that family member there because it can cause more guilt or they don't want to see them and remember them in that type of way. Yeah, it is. It's, it shouldn't, it's not a guilty thing and it's not anything that anyone does wrong. If, if you're gone when they take their last breath, it's not something you should feel guilty for. Absolutely. It's really important for people to hear. Mm -hmm. And and I'm sure the hospice People, the, the the agents that are there, who reassure somebody, because I can just imagine how. I mean, it was it was really more about me right. than it was about my dad. I realized after the fact that I didn't want him to be alone. I wanted that for him. But if he had chosen to leave when I had to go do running around, I would have wanted that that support right. and that validation that. It was his choice because dying is ultimately a personal process. It's a personal Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. So we can't really dictate what's best for them. Right. They're going to do it in their way. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you feel that way too, because I know I have my strong um, opinions and experiences, yeah. but it's a whole different thing for somebody to hear it from someone, an expert like you, who's in the field of being with people and caring for them during the dying process. That. So after everything that we've been able to cover together today, I'm so grateful for this conversation on a personal level. What would you say if you could pick or maybe a couple, what is your most profound experience that you've had with somebody who's either approaching death or who's actually gone through the dying process that maybe you've been with? Maybe a story or two. Is there something that was really profound and is it okay to share i mean it has to be be comfortable for you because it could be deeply personal right are you are you asking something profound personally or in my nursing career i would say how about possibly both if they're in your in the recesses of the files in your in your experiences in your mind you know like when you recall like what stands out to you most maybe professionally in your nursing career that affected you um, maybe in your career and then like personally, or it could be the same one, same experience. It seems like you've probably had a lot. I was just going to say, I don't think that I have one specific thing for either of those, but I, I think just in my nursing career, as we spoke about at the beginning, um, you know, I worked in an oncology unit and I worked in a long-term acute care hospital. And I remember one specific patient in that acute long-term acute care hospital, which is kind of like a long-term ICU. So this patient had been paralyzed and was paralyzed for years and years and years. She was in a really awful hunting accident. Um, and I think she had been paralyzed for about 20 years. Um, and had um, a tracheostomy, so a tube in her throat to help her breathe because she couldn't 
um, keep her airway open to help her breathe due to her paralyzation. And for me, her quality of life just seemed so poor that if it were me, I would not have wanted to live that way. She was completely bedbound, 100% dependent on other people to, to breathe, to eat, to, to use the restroom, all of these very personal things. And for me, that would have, that just felt so awful, but that's what she wanted. She wanted to live another day, just to live another day. And that was what was important to her. And so that's what we did for her. And, it just really made me change my thought processes. You know, I was very young when I went into healthcare and over time with life experience and just dealing with people and learning these things, I'm very much about quality versus quantity. So quality of life versus how long you have to live. And for every patient, that is very different. And that's what I want to find for them so that that's what we can honor at the end of their life. Because I think everyone has a right to choose how they die. And that looks very different for a lot of people. Um, wow. I can't, I can't imagine. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would want to live like that. I always think to myself, especially working in senior housing and taking care of my parents till they passed. I, if I have the privilege of growing old, I really want to know my name and I don't want to be wearing a diaper. Mm -hmm. You know, I really want to know who the people are around me and have my wits about me and be able to move and, and have a quality of life if I'm going to grow old, you mm -hmm. know? So I should be careful what I wish for because <laughs> you never know what that means. Right. Uh, right. But yeah. yeah, that's an amazing thing to have a will to live. So was this gal, was she like on hospice her whole life? She wasn't on hospice. So this was when I worked in the long-term ICU, the long-term acute care hospital. And she was in and out because she kept getting infections. Her wounds would get really bad. And so she'd need to come in for, you know, aggressive nursing wound treatments um, or could IV she antibiotics. She could. She could talk. Um, there's devices they can put on a tracheostomy to allow people to talk. So wow. she was able to speak with us. And um, I do remember she got very, very ill towards the end. And um, I was actually the nurse who started her morphine drip at the end of her life and it was uh i actually stayed late that night to to make sure she was comfortable because i wanted i wanted her to be comfortable because that was finally the choice that she had made and her family had made she had gotten to a point where there really was absolutely nothing else we could do for her wow, how old was she when she when she finally passed if she was in the state for 20 years I think she, you know, her accident was like in her 20s or 30s. So wow, she was only in her 50s or 60s. I don't remember exactly her age now, but I can, I, you know, now I go, okay, maybe that makes it because she can still listen to the news and yeah. watch TV and know what's going on in the world and still, I, I guess I could relate to that. She was young. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I've learned over the years as I've gotten more life experience and dealt with people and things like that, that, you know, I always say I would never to things, but I don't know if I was in that situation. I don't know what I would have chosen either. It's, it's one thing to say now, I would never want to do that. It's another thing to be in that situation and especially being so young for her, you know, she was. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really important. You know, there's that saying, you know, don't judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Absolutely. I, I totally hear that. Absolutely. Wow. So 
Gosh, what would you say is the most rewarding thing then about your work? You know, I really am passionate about allowing people to make their own healthcare decisions. And um, that was one of the things I was really unhappy about working in a hospital. I, again, I love caring for people and I loved being there to help educate them, but it felt so much like we were pressuring them and pushing treatments on them that they might not have wanted. And so, you know, my my most favorite thing and the most rewarding thing about being in hospice is allowing people to make their own choices for their health care. You know, I always tell my patients, I'm here to show you the roadmap. You just tell me which road we're going to go down and they get to choose what they feel is best for them. So what words of advice then would you have or words of support for Anybody who's facing the dying process or for people who have a loved one who is in good in need hospice. I think the biggest thing is to remember that there's no wrong answer and that if you see something happening with your loved one that you feel maybe they are headed towards the route of hospice to reach out early. The earlier we can bring our patients on, the better because we can really get to know them and know what their wishes and wants are and really help support that family to help make those decisions um, through the end of life. We, you know, if they're not quite ready for hospice and, you know, I've gone out and done evaluations on patients and gone and assessed them and looked at their medical records and talked with my doctor about patients and they're just not quite ready yet based off the qualifications from Medicare. Um, there's palliative care options as well. So they're getting a little extra support from palliative care and helping treat and manage their pain or their anxiety or whatever issues they're having um, while they're kind of preparing for hospice. And it just, you know, it's all about giving them more quality of life. That is a powerful interview, if I may say so myself. I really believe that this will help people. And I'm just going to personally get a little emotional and thank you. Of course. For the work that you do for people. I mean, it is... You know, we don't remember being born. We don't remember coming down the birth canal or being, you know, taken out of our mother's bellies from a C-section. We don't remember that. No. But we're very aware during the dying process. Absolutely. And it really is like another type of birth because it's just a transition. And it's so important for people to feel empowered and like they have options and they feel like you who can. So thank you so much for the work that you do. You're, I, I call an angel on earth, and I'm sure you've helped a lot of people feel that. So anyway, thank you so much, Miss Donna. And um, for our audience out there, I really hope that um, you got a lot from this interview today and that it helps you on your journey either for your loved ones or, or, you know, for a family member that you have that's facing this process. And maybe you feel scared about the dying process or what might happen to you one day or what it will look like for you or your loved ones. And I hope that this helps you feel a little more um, empowered in, in that way. Um, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. And thank you. And this is your host, Linda Damita, wishing you longevity, laughter, love, and the ultimate wealth of health.
Thank you so much for joining us today on Senior Living Arizona. Please share this podcast with friends and family and help seniors find the way to live life to the fullest. Help Senior Living Arizona increase our reach by taking a few moments to write a review. Senior Living Arizona is dedicated to bringing helpful tips that support aging successfully. Please reach out to us with topics you'd like us to cover. You can find us on social media at Senior Living Arizona and on the web at www.slscommunities.com.